I'd like to welcome everybody <laughs> to the 654th meeting of the Chicago Civil War. I want to welcome all our guests on this very special night. Can't hear out of one ear. I'd like to, at this time to have all our guests please stand. Everyone who's a guest tonight, please stand. This is the first test of the evening. <laughs> Dr. Dahman, oh, please, please keep standing. Dr. Dahman, would you like to uh, introduce your guests, please? Good friends from Lena, Larry and Trudy Schuler. Good friends from the Chicago area, Mel and Jackie Sokowski. I'd like to introduce my family. Uh, my small son, Todd, <laughs> Todd Jacobs right there. My daughter, Laura Duet, and her husband, Mike Duet. That's my family, thank you. Back at, at uh, that table back there, who, who authorized you to come? <laughs> Would you introduce yourselves, please? Oh, great. Uh-huh. Thank you. Thank you. Nice to see you. Well, welcome. Thank you. Uh, my guests are my wife, Janet Foss and John Stone. Nice to meet you. Uh, my guest, Fred Bell, and my wife, Ruth Anderson. Well, thank you all for coming. Thank you. This is a very special night for us, and uh, the night when we honor someone who has done so much for the contribution of understanding uh, of the Civil War, a man who has uh, accomplished a great deal and uh, it, it's just really nice to, to be able to recognize Dr. Dahman. But before we do that, we also have a book raffle. And Larry? Rob is going to do it? OK, Rob's coming up here. Would Doctor like to pick the first ticket? Would you like to have him pick the first ticket? Don't give out the Nevins for him. <laughs> Whatever you're doing, don't give them. Yeah, don't pick those two. Don't, don't. Hello. Here's the first one. The Dr. first Dr. winner is 352917. Want to read it again? Oh, we've got somebody. 352917. <laughs> 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 Put your pen away. <laughs> Choose from uh, the books over there. Uh, there's, a, there's a flyer on the tables announcing the auction for the Salt Creek Civil War Roundtable on November 17th. That the proceeds of that also go to Battlefield Preservation. So keep that in mind and uh, come out there if you get a chance. Did you want to say something about the. Uh... He's going to do it. Okay. Second winner is 353038. I, I hope you have an envelope for me, Larry. It's a good cause. Go, Larry. Hey, wait. Let's see the ticket. Yeah. <laughs> 
It's in here. We trust you. And God, we trust. Everybody else oh, proves hey, it. Hey, look, this is really good. Is it yours? Yeah. <laughs> okay. 030, huh? It is. It's in mine. I picked my own, didn't I? What yeah, you it? did. Joint Committee on the Conduct of the Raffle will be I'll meeting after. Right <laughs> <laughs> yes. This is not mine. Boo. I hope it's not mine. 352940. <five>, <laughs> 3530173530173. I was going to chuck my. <laughs> check your own. Good, that's the one I want. <laughs> Not yet. 352885. <laughs> uh oh. <laughs> <laughs> Complaint department meets at 3 a.m. at 5101 South Wentworth, second floor. <laughs> That's where I'll be. <laughs> Tonight we raised $105 for battlefield preservation. And please keep in mind we got a sign-up sheet out there for anybody that has ideas on where we should send these dollars that we're raising. Thank you very much. Uh, now for the fun part, where is our quiz master, David? Is he still grading the quizzes? Oh, here he comes. Didn't I say it right? No, it's What are you laughing about? <laughs> Professor David, did you get new glasses? No, no, I've had these since yes, May. I've had these since May. Well, that's new. Good evening, everyone. All righty, Gordon Daneman on a museum, a battlefield, and a hero. True or false, the Surgeon General at the outbreak of the Civil War was Colonel Thomas Lawson, a veteran of the War of 1812. True. I was amazed when I read Doctors in Blue to discover just how superannuated some of these people in the medical corps were. <laughs> Two, true or false, much of the relief work during the war was done by the U.S. Sanitary Commission. Yes, it was. Three, Frederick Law Olmsted did not serve as executive secretary of the commission. False, he most certainly did. Four, true or false, at the beginning of the war, not all of the newly appointed army surgeons had medical degrees. Again, this was a, another thing I was surprised about, but yes, it's true. Apparently, not only could you practice law without a license in those days, you could practice medicine as well. Um, good luck. I wonder why they lived shorter lives back then. True or false, during the war, sanitary conditions at army camps left much to be desired. Um, yeah. <laughs> and six, 
And I was amazed how many people missed this because by now, guys, when you see Stephen A. Hurl but anywhere on one of these quizzes, you know by now that that's kind of a get my gift to you people and that you should all be getting, getting answering the question correctly here. True or false, Stephen A. Hurlwood served as briefly as Surgeon General in the Western Department. God, I hope not. <laughs> false. All righty. Several couple of quizzes were given to me here at the last minute. Let me take a quick look at these two here. Okay. 100s were had by Janet and Kurt. A90 mouse, although if you A90 mouse, although if you get a coffee stain on it, it kind of makes it um, easy to recognize. Yeah, yeah, Dick, I'm talking to you. Uh, bend over. Uh, B. Bevan. General John Schofield. Sonia Reshley. Uh, this looks like. What is this, PCU? PCW. PCW. Here's your glasses. Yes, I know, but I use those for distance, my dear. The Joint Committee on the Conduct of Girardi, and believe me, that investigation should be commenced in like forthwith. Uh, White Sox to prior Bruce. Yes, Bruce, I know, I feel for you, buddy. Uh, it looks like either El Moro or El Marco here. And uh, Donna Tui. Yay, Donna. Okay. Thank you, David. You're welcome. Such cheap, clean fun. Where else would you have it? Well, it is. It is. Okay. Finally tonight, we have a chance to honor a gentleman who's one of ours, who has done so much, accomplished so much. How many have been to the Civil War Medical Museum in Frederick, Maryland? Turn around, doctor. Turn around. We thank you for that. It's just a fantastic, fantastic museum. And I'm sure you uh, had many moments where you thought it would never happen. But the scholarship that's involved is fantastic, and we are happy to have you with us tonight. But before you come up here and give us your talk, there's someone who is privileged to know you very, very well, and he would like to say a few words at this time. So I'm going to call on Richard McAdoo. Hello. <laughs> Remember, Mac, I'm your dentist. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I tried to find a pair of those... Uh, 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 hillbilly tea, sorry. <laughs> it is my pleasure to introduce to you Dr. Gordon E. Dowman, known as Gordy. I would like to relate to you that Gordy is an ordinary person. He has a wife, Karen, two sons, Doug and Greg, a dog, and a dental practice in Lena, Illinois. Gordy loves football and has spent many years as a referee of Friday night football or high school football games. I also learned that he is a play-by-play -play announcer for the Lena Winslow Cheese Curds. Uh, it, Panthers. Oh, I'm sorry, I got some bad information. There. Uh, anyway. That's <laughs> 
Gordy is a Green Bay Packer fan. And men, uh, please, please, there's a lot of love here. You may remember that ordinary Gordy appeared on the front page of USA Today pushing a peanut down the main street of Lena with his nose after losing a Green Bay bet. I first met Gardy in 1972. We were members of Camp Fuller in Rockford and the Civil War Roundtable in Oregon, Illinois, started by Armin Wayne. Armin. And uh, Armin, who is a past member of this roundtable and has been on many of the roundtable uh, trips uh, with us. But anyway, due to uh, Gordy's dental practice and Armin's duties on Sunday, we did not get to attend very many reenactments together. But when we did, what a trio we were. I would blow them up, Gordy would sew them up, and Armin would send them up. <laughs> Gordy's adventures are misadventures. On his 1975 roundtable trip, started me on my roundtable adventures. You may remember Gordy as the one who was leaning over the rail and feeding the fish from the back of the boat in Nashville. Everyone else ate the same food, but Gordy's the only one that got sick. Uh, perhaps you remember him as the bad jokes on bus number two. Or many of you, if you've been uh, here long enough, <clears throat> you will remember we made him a temporary bus marshal, and he lost the bus on the Vicksburg tour. <laughs> Perhaps you also may remember Gordy as the one who was wet from the waist down and won the Purple Heart. He said he fell in the creek at, on the Atlanta trip. Well, if not, if you don't remember these things, I'm sure that you will remember Gordy as the one telling us about field hospitals <coughs> uh, on the Shiloh tour or being enlightened about Dr. Letterman on the Antietam tour. I remember Gordy purchasing a Civil War medical bottle on the 78 Chancellorsville tour and his conversations with me of how someday he hoped to have the best Civil War collection in America. Our ordinary Gordy was not collecting as you and I do for our own uh, enjoyment, but he was collecting with a dream and a determination to share his collection and tell a story. Yes, a museum a field hospital museum, and yes, a field hospital museum at Antietam. In his quest for that museum, Gordy found time and energy to publish three books on Civil War medicine, appear in TV documentaries, present Civil War medical displays, and speak to many, many roundtables. In early 1990, Gordy was discussing a museum site at Antietam with the National Park Service. But his dream for a museum at Antietam was not to materialize. And Gordy's quest was shaken, but his determination was turned in a new direction in 1993 with an offer from Frederick, Maryland to open a museum there. In 1993, uh, or he had that in 1993. In 1995, a storefront exhibit and museum gift shop opened in a building 
that in part dated from 1832 and had been used as an embalming station during the Civil War. The museum had to move for renovations but reopened with a grand opening in September the 21st, 2000. That's where we were when we went there as a round table. Renovation was only the beginning for the museum and it continued to, it continues to add exhibits and discovery or hands-on stations for children. The museum has been prominent in programs for the History Channel, Battlefields Detectives, and Modern Marvels, and it works with PBS. The museum and its staff are responsible for publishing three books as well as its surgeon uh, called Journal. The museum has received numerous major awards and accolades for its design and publications, as well as recognition from the state of Maryland and the United States Congress. The museum held its first medical conference or symposium in 1993 and in September of this year completed its 14th annual conference. All of this occurred because Ordinary Gordy had a dream to have a display that would tell the story of the Civil War surgeon. In April 2005, Perhaps one of Gordy's dreams was realized when the Pry House Field Hospital Museum on the Antietam Battlefield was open. Someone said, heroes are ordinary men who do extraordinary things. Our hero, our 2006 recipient for the Nevins Freeman Award, <coughs> Founder and Chairman of the National Museum of Civil War Medicine, Dr. Gordy Dahman. You know, McAdoo, you just did my whole speech, so I'm just going to go home. We'll adjourn to the bar and we'll go from there. It's good to be home. I've spoken to this great round table for three times. The first in 1980, when we all met at the Como Inn. And Karen and I and her mom and dad brought a bunch of material from home and we set it up and it was the Chicago round table the most elite round table in our country the father of all round tables which gave me credibility to move on with my dream and I thank you all of you old friends new friends and good friends of the Chicago Roundtable for what you've done for me and our museum. Tonight we want to talk about a museum, a battlefield, and a hero. They're the three loves of mine in the Civil War. The number one love of mine in my life is my wife Karen. Would you stand? Without her perseverance 
and her always saying, you can do this, when I said, I can't do this, and for my two sons, which Richard acknowledged also, because they stood with me on many trips to Gettysburg and many Civil War shows when we could be doing other things, but they always stood with me and gave me encouragement that made this possible. Tonight, we're going to show to Pictorial the story of the museum, the, the story of the battlefield, and the story of my hero. This is a slide projector. <laughs> it's now a, not a PowerPoint. My sons say, Dad, you live in the dark ages. When are you going to get up with the crowd and do PowerPoint? And I said, when you find me in a box like this, and maybe your mother or you will take the 6,000 slides that I have and make it into PowerPoint. I hope you all can see. I don't know if you can dim the lights any. They're going to try a little bit up here. OK. It started with a collection in 1972, excuse me, when I left the United States Army and we moved to Lena. I wanted to tell the true story of Civil War medicine, which I didn't think had been told. There were three books at that time, Doctors in Blue, Doctors in Gray, and uh, Brooks's Civil War Medicine. And that was it. And I went to a Civil War show once, and a gentleman came up and he said, I hear you collect medical items of the Civil War. He said, you need this for your collection. And I said, what is it? He said, well, it's sterile cat gut suture material. I said, sir, you don't understand. There was no sterility no known to the Civil War surgeon. And I said, you, I have to tell the true story, not the movie versions. How many have seen Glory? Where Gould Shaw is brought into an operating area. They're picking shrapnel out of his neck. And a man is being yelled, do not cut anymore. Don't cut me anymore. And they bring a white screen in between that. There were no white screens in the Civil War hospitals. Plus, they were not yelling and screaming because they were using anesthetic agents. It frustrates me when they still talk about men being held down on their operating table, and they don't talk about chloroform and ether, which put the men miraculously asleep so they could work on them without pain. And this was in the true, sto true story of the Civil War. It all started with the collection. Karen and I and the boys would take the parts of the collection and go around the country. We'd do Civil War shows at Gettysburg, Richmond, Virginia, Ohio, um, Ashland and Mansfield. Mary knows Mansfield very well. Nashville and places like that. I would never win best of show. Maybe once I did. But I always liked to win the most educational award. And that told me that I was educating the public on the true story of the Civil War. This shows the interior of the great tent that we own. And a hospital display that we put up in Ohio. But this was the beginning of the museum. This gave me the idea of what we would put into a museum once we eventually founded it. In 85, I did the first book on Civil War medical instruments. And it grew from here. This book is now in, I think, its 13th printing. An older collector once told me, he said, you're only a caretaker of your items for a while. You can't take them with you. And once you're finished with them, 
You should make them better. People should realize that they are better. You should nurture them, protect them. And so when you pass them on to other collectors or in a museum, and you want to tell a better story about that. And here's one item from the collection. This is a prosthetic leg that belonged to Peleg Bradford. Peleg was from Carmel, Maine. He joined the first heavy Maine artillery in 1862. Why? He didn't want to free the slaves. He didn't think much of bringing the Union back together. He joined because 13 of his buddies joined, and he wanted the $13 a month. And off to war he went. For two years, he had very cushy duty in and around Washington, D.C. and some of the bigger forts as a heavy artilleryman. But in 1864, Grant decided to strip these forts of many men, and he became an artillery, I mean, an infantry soldier. In June of 64, he was sitting in a trench around Petersburg. A rebel sniper hit him in the leg. He was taken to a field hospital and an amputation at mid-calf. Suppuration set in, gangrene set in. He was sent to Chimborazo Hospital in uh, Washington, D.C. A second day operation at mid-thigh. Percentage of survival at this operation, probably about 60%. But he survived, and he's writing his fiancée, Cynthia, in, Mar in Maine. Dearest friend, we do, I do not hold you by our betrothal. I am not a whole man anymore. I have lost my leg, and I will not come back and be able to dance at our wedding. Two years of research into the uh, Bradford family in Carmel, Maine, and luckily I was able to communicate with his grandson before he passed away. Grandson Bradford told me, Grandpa came back from the war. He married Cynthia and had seven children and died in 1911. One thing he said about his grandpa, grandpa would never allow a firearm in that family again. He couldn't stand the sight of a gun, which is quite extraordinary because Maine is a very uh, hunting directed uh, period. Whoop, went backwards. See, if you had PowerPoint, we wouldn't know how to do that. <laughs> PowerPoint, I'd go right back. The idea of the museum grew from a visit to Antietam. This is the Piper House. It was a B&B. &B. I think it still is a B&B. &B. And we stayed there, Karen and I did. I went to see the then superintendent of Antietam, Rich Ramber, and I presented him with an idea a National Museum of Civil War Medicine to be established on the Antietam battlefield at the Piper Farm and the Piper Barn. He said, that's a great idea. Pursue it. I found some other friends of mine, board members, that uh, we had meetings there for four years with uh, Superintendent Ramber. We looked at the Piper Farm. We looked at the Poffenberger Farm. We looked at the Pry Farm been all the farms around, and it never worked out with the National Park Service. Superintendent Ramber was uh, uh, moved to a different site. Another superintendent came in, and uh, she didn't think much of our plan, and the, the plan fell apart at Antietam. But we had one of our 
original board members, John Olson, who was a native of Frederick, Maryland, and he let it slip to the paper, the Frederick News Post, that there was a museum looking for a home. There was a headline in the paper, museum looking for a home. And Frederick is a very historical town. They call it the town of the spires. There are seven big spires for the local churches. The town had a building that was an albatross. It was a political football. The mayor then, Gordon, and an alderman by the name of Jim Grimes called me in and some of our board members and took us around town and showed us this building. It was a Carty building. Built in the 1830s, as Mac said. It was a furniture store and also an undertaking place. In fact, during the Battle of Antietam in South Mountain, it was an ambulance stop and also an under or a mortuary place. So it's a very historic building. There are three floors to this building that goes back a lot. The city had to buy this building because they wanted the property to build a parking deck, which you can't see in the back. So the city tried to do something with the building. They put a uh, art gallery in the bottom. The second floor actually had a French restaurant. You can see the, the steps that ran up here to the French restaurant. The third floor was inhabited nothing but uh, Frederick ghosts. And some people think they're still up there. So they gave us a good lease and said, this is your building, do something with it. Oh, great. We had a fledgling board. We had to get ourselves legalized with the Internal Revenue 501 and all that kind of stuff. And the city wanted an answer within two weeks. You know how political things go, because it was election year. And this was in September, and the November elections were coming. So we made a big gasp. John Olson and I and other board members said, we'll do it. And we formed a board. Myself, Gretchen Warden, John Olson, Dr. Terry Hambrick, Dan Loftus, our legal attorney, John Schilt, who knows more about Antietam than any man alive, and the, the father of Antietam uh, Battlefield, Bob Geringer. This asshole, forget about. <laughs> I hate to use that against anybody. But we were for forced to hire an executive director because John Olson had a job and I had a job, so we had to find an executive director. We went out searching and we got great recommendations about this person. I can't give you his name because my blood pressure will peak. And <laughs> so we brought him on board. He almost killed us. We were able to get him to resign in about a year. But we got architectural drawings from different architects, and we got the idea and the cost of what it's going to turn that building into a high-class museum that we wanted to build. And the monetary fund came down to us, and they said $3 million. Now we had $20,000 in the bank. This is a story of an agony and ecstasy. So we decided, well, let's go for it. So we kind of got rid of that design. It didn't look like we wanted to do it, and so we changed. But in 1993-94, we opened displays on the first floor. And this was a proud moment for me because Karen was there. 
with her mom and dad and my, my dad, George. I learned so much from my father. He was 94 at this time. He could outwork me. He drove all around. Two years later, he died of a stroke, but he had 96 great years. But he was there to see the beginnings of this museum. We put together some displays. We got an ambulance. We set up a field operating station inside the museum so we could bring people in and show us and show them what we wanted to do, the future. They showed a surgeon's tent, which we wanted to do, and show how it was set up as a camp. A fixed hospital. Notice these mannequins. Hokey, but that's all we could afford at this period of time. But we got the idea of what we wanted to do with this building. We used reproduction material. This is an actual surgeon's uniform. And I got the idea by going to Cantini out in Wheaton. Colonel Votaw was the executive director. And I went through his museum, the First Division Museum. And I was awed by what they did. These immersion displays. You walk through this World War I trench with the tank overhead. You can hear the gunfire. You can hear the airplane droning. You can actually hear water draining through here. I said, that's what we want to do with our museum. This is the D-Day part of it. I went there many times, and one day I just sat there watching people. There were two older gentlemen who had to be veterans of World War II. I don't know if they were at Normandy or not, but they walked through the display, and tears were coming down their eyes. I said, this is how my museum or our museum wants to affect people. So I asked Colonel Votaw, I said, who was your designer? And he said, Frank Smecker out of Michigan. So I contacted Frank with my idea. Now we had to raise the $3 million. We had the idea. We knew what we wanted to do. The first step was go to the state legislature of the state of Maryland. What a day. I went to the Senate Finance Committee, chaired by Honorable Charles Smeltzer. I sat there in a green table with a green cloth. You know how you see it in, on TV at the congressional hearings with five senators up there with a box of slides and an idea. Now, Senator Smeltzer was known to being tight with the state money. And when I got there, they said, well, you're only going to get about 10 minutes with this committee, so you better wow them real fast. So I walked in and put my slides and got it all set up, and Charlie Smeltzer said, this is Dr. Dahman from Lena. He has a great idea for our state. Give him all the time he wants. We spent about 20 minutes, and Charlie Smeltzer said, this is good for Frederick County. It's good for Frederick and good for the state of Maryland. A week later, we heard that the Senate Finance Committee gave us a million dollar matching grant. But we had to match it with a million dollars. Luckily, there was a great family in Frederick by the name of George Delaplane and Betty Delaplane. And they matched that million dollars for us. So we were just about there. So we went out and beat the bushes, the board members, myself, I felt like a prostitute. I was all over just asking for money, anywhere I could get it. But we raised the next million. But I remember in 1998, in December, it was almost, I think it was December the 23rd, I get a call from our new executive director, Janine Smith, who was the greatest one we've, not the great, we have two great ones, but she was one of the best. 
She says, I hate to tell you this on the day before Christmas Eve, but we're out of money. We'll pay off the staff after the first of the year, but we're going to have to close the doors. I always said this was peaks and valleys, agony and ecstasy. I felt like Ebenezer Scrooge. I said, so be it. But I said, can't we? And then I called somebody, my father confessor, Reverend Wang, was sitting right in front of me. I said, Armin, we're dead. He said, no, you're not dead. You're only dead when they put you in the ground. He said, God wills this museum to be, and it will be. And the Delaplane family stepped up again and gave us $50,000 to continue into spring so we could get more visitors, and the museum survived. In late 1999, the spring of 2000, we decided we had the money, we went for it, we had our design, and we started to take apart the building and put it back together. Janine Smith, my executive director, said, we're going to open this museum October the 21st, 2000. I said, you're crazy. I sat in the curb of this place with a martini and cried one night. I said, you can't do it. We can't do it. We had to move because we couldn't stay in the building because we had to gut the building. So we moved to temporary quarters, as Max said. We, we found a place. We had to move some, some displays, put up some other displays. You know, we take apart putting things, put it back together, and then we knew we were going to take them apart again. Ain't fun, but we did it. This is our temporary museum. We kept our presence in Frederick. And this is where we start gutting the museum. We had to take it apart from the inside. We couldn't bring Henry, Henry machinery in because the vibrations would knock down the front walls. Down to the rafters. One night I get a call, March 2000, from our contractor. He was a very good contractor out of Baltimore. He said, Doc, I got bad news for you. We found out putting the footings in your front of the building is going to fall in. I said, well, that's bad. What else is bad? <laughs> he said, we can fix it because we've got to put concrete and steel in there. I said, well, that's good. How bad is the cost? Oh, just another 80000 Gulp. But we're this far along. So I called Armin again. He said, God wills it. I said, okay, I hope God can print money. And we went forward. I told you I have two sons. I'm proud of both of them. But if it wasn't for this son, Douglas, who has a museum, a master's degree in museum science, and he worked for us this, at this time when the museum was being built. He was my man on the spot. I'm back in Lena. He's there, Johnny, on the spot, watching this go up, telling me what can we do and what we can't do. Because of the great job he did for us, the Smithsonian plucked him away, and now he works for them. But if it wasn't for Doug, this museum wouldn't have come across. Then in October of 2000, opening day. It was a great day in October. Crisp day, sunny. We had 30,000 people in the streets of Frederick opening that museum. I'd like to take you a little tour on the museum. We start with medical education in the 1860s. We go into recruiting camps, and we go to camp life, and we go to evacuation, field dressing stations, field hospitals, and at the end, pavilion hospitals. We take you on the whole circuit. 
This is medical education. We tell the story of uh, the 100 and so medical schools who were in, in business in the 1840s and 1850s, uh, teaching medicine to uh, students at that period of time, both men and women. Showing the lecture halls. Bob Galliani's out there, a dental friend of mine. Doesn't that look like uh, what we were at Loyola back in the 60s? <laughs> Maybe not the, what they wore, but remember how that thing, that amphitheater. We sit there and try to go to sleep during pathology. <laughs> but on the other part of it, we would show medical items from that. This is a diploma 1858. This is uh, from Georgetown Medical School. This is a diploma from South Carolina Medical School. And some of the teaching aids they used in the medical schools in the 1840s and 1850s. Then we went to recruiting, a southern recruiting station in the courthouse. <coughs> the recruiting officer, uh, the, the uh, surgeon is here. The young men would be coming in and signing up. They would be given a physical exam. This guy looks like, I don't want to do this, maybe. But his girlfriend is saying, yeah, 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 put on the uniform, get out of here, let's go to war. This is a recruiting drum used in the state of Ohio. This was a coffee table in my house for a lot of years. We had to remove it from Karen's sitting room. It cost me $3,000 to replace it with some other furniture because we lost one little coffee table. That's what happens. I'll go back. I mentioned Peleg. Peleg is wound through the museum. His story is wound through like a common thread. And this is how he was recruited in the state of Maine. Then we talked the physical exams, some good, some bad. Had to be bad because women served in the Civil War as infantry soldiers. Stripped to the waist and maybe not. We had a problem with the building because there was floors that kind of, on one part, they were lower and higher than the other. So we didn't have enough money to put the, all this back on one site. But we got the idea we wanted to purge ourselves from one display to the other. We wanted to go from recruiting to camp. So we made these little cur purge halls, we call them. We had dioramas painted, foliage, and as you walk down, we can hear the sounds of marching soldiers. You can hear the sounds of horses, drums, as you march into the camp. This is surgeon's call, 6.30 in the morning. This is the original Civil War tent of Surgeon John Wiley of the 6th uh, New Jersey that I, we own. Here's the surgeon looking at kind of a gold bricker. He's, aha, I'm sick, I don't feel good. Uh, 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 get back and do your duty. Now this guy, is sick. <laughs> and one thing we why pride ourselves is, is our mannequins. I hate storefront mannequins in museums. Each one of these mannequins cost us $6,000 a piece. And we patterned it after individual Civil War soldiers. This man is sick. Then in the part of that we show the original Civil War uniforms of a Union surgeon and a Confederate surgeon. So you see Diorama, and you also see the original equipment in back of a uh, pr protected behind glass. This is our field, field evacuation, the Letterman plan, which you're going to hear a little bit. But this soldier is dying. He's going to be loaded in, the, in the, an ambulance and evacuated out. This is our field dressing station. Notice the rock. We patterned this after Gettysburg. 
This is the hospital rock at Gettysburg. Even Ed Bars knows about this one because we told him about it. This is a monument to the 32nd Massachusetts uh, Surgeon Adams who put his, surgeon, or his dressing station close to the battle lines within 60 yards where his soldiers could get uh, first aid behind this rock. So we patterned our field dressing station after that rock. We had a great debate about our displays. We wanted them effective, but we didn't want them gory. I get exasperated at times with reenactors who make things too gory when they try to make people pass out or kids pass out. So we wanted to, you know, we show the horrors of war, but not to the point where it's going to make you sick. And we also show that this is a Confederate soldier who's being attended to by a Union surgeon and a Union hospital steward on the battlefield. And this happened. It also happened when Confederate surgeons took care of Union soldiers. And behind this is the original uh, kits that they would use on the battlefield. This is our field hospital scene. This is a Confederate scene as the, amb the ambulances are bringing back the evacuated from the battlefield and taking back to a, uh, an amputation scene. Letterman set this up as a, a triage unit with three surgeons. Head surgeon, assistant surgeon, and another assistant surgeon who was an anesthesiologist. They would place the man on the operating table, examine the wound, usually under chloroform and ether. The three of them would have to concur that an amputation or this type of surgery would occur. Just one man couldn't make that decision. It took the three of them to decide, yes, this leg was badly mangled. It had to be amputated. Tourniquets were applied, uh, the anesthetic was applied, and the amputation took place within 15 minutes. And here you can see the amputation kits uh, and drug and ether from there. You can see right close to it what the original material looked like. Again, we wanted to purge from there and go to a, a field or a pavilion hospital. So we use this as a hospital train, which they use. They use a hospital train. So you're walking down this corridor. You can see wounded men on stretchers on both sides of this car, and you actually hear train sounds. The clickety-click, the clickety-click, the, the wail of the whistle. And lo and behold, you're now in a, a pavilion hospital at Point Lookout, Maryland. This is the original wood from the original hospital. This was an old shed that we found down there. We had the um, archaeologists and everybody said, yes, this is the original wood. It was owned by a man who was going to burn it down. He heard about us and what we wanted to do with us. Yeah, he said, you can have it for a price, <laughs> a couple thousand bucks. Okay. So we had to buy it and kill it and all that kind of stuff. But we put this on the outside of our pavilion hospital. And this is the interior of the pavilion hospital with a surgeon looking at a wounded soldier, or a sick soldier. The hospital steward is going to the drug pavilion and looking for the drugs. My favorite guy, double amputee if we can see his legs. But he's looking in the face of the Lord or his God. And his nurse, his mother, is with him. They always refer to the nurses as their mother. And he knows he's not going to live. You actually see tears coming down his eyes. And he's asking his mother to write a letter to his real mother, telling him that he served his country and he died with the Lord.
the nurse did this. And this is our nursing display. The first nurses were the Sisters of Charity. Their mother house is 40 miles north of Frederick up in Emmitsburg. And they donated this uh, habit, original habit to us, and we set it on a mannequin. The stipulation was, though, that the two sisters from Emmitsburg had to come down and they would mount that habit on the mannequin and tie the rosary and tie everything the way it should be tied. So they came down, the two little nuns, and did that. And this shows faces of Civil War nurses, both north and south, and also male. Walt Whitman was a male uh, nurse in Washington, D.C. during the war. This is original hospital flag, original hospital uh, steward's coat, and original hospital gown that's also in that display. Apothecary wagon, the out and wreath apothecary wagon. This was donated by uh, uh, persons from the uh, Maryland School of Pharmacy who lost one of their classmates. And they garnered the money to have this made and, and dedicate it to, to his, their lost classmate. We have an embalming uh, station. It's kind of fitting because the building we're in was an embalming station. This is uh, the embalmer Burr. And this is the Cardi building. This was taken around the turn of the century, which shows our building was used as embalming during the, after the war. And Frederick was a city of hospitals, 33 hospitals. In fact, hospital number one at the uh, School of the Deaf. The deaf is there. And we've a brand new display, which I haven't seen yet, and get a picture of just opened a few weeks ago. This is the interior of the, Frederick, uh, the Lutheran Evangelical Church, which is just a, a block away, showing the interior of a hospital after the Battle of Antietam. They didn't take the pews out of the church. They took the boards and put them right over the pews. So you can here's the choir loft up here, and you can see how close it is with the beds. That's one of the few pictures you can see of an interior of a uh, hospital during the Civil War. This is our fledgling library and research center, which we're trying to build for. And one of the things I want to do before I leave this earth is see this build up and, and become more and more effective so we can study Civil War medicine there. This is our conservatory area, state-of-the-work state cabinetry. Uh, everything is humidity controlled, the lighting is controlled. Our, our curator, Ryan Rakicki, is working there. Everything is as it should be. We have lighting, uh, fire control, everything as it should be, humidity control in that part of the building. And we have to sell things. If you're a museum, you got to sell things to pay the light bills and pay the other bills. So this is our museum store. So this is the story of the museum, a battlefield. The most pristine battlefield, I think, in our system is where? Antietam. Right, Mary? Yeah. It's probably, you know, this is looking out from the visitor center, looking down the Harper's Ferry, the Piper Farm. There's no Steinwar Avenue with McDonald's and this and that and, and uh, motels and everything. You go there and it's like going to heaven for me, the Moomaw Farm, the Dunkard Church. The peaceful church was built in the 1850s by the peaceful Dunkards. And in around this church on September the 17th, 1862, 23,000 men were wounded, killed, or missing. 
ironic that it happened there. And the Burnside Bridge. Preservation. You all have a petition on your table. I hope you all sign it. If I can find this. We're under siege, preservationists. I got this letter, Civil War Preservation Trust, last week, of what happened at Harper's Ferry on a Saturday, after, Saturday morning when a developer came in with an off-duty policeman and three lawyers and equipment, and we're going to dig across hallowed ground at Harper's Ferry to put in water and sewer lines for a new development of over a thousand homes going across my property and your property and illegal as hell but they couldn't stop them because this guy these guys had planned it so well to do it on a Saturday morning you couldn't go get a court order on a Saturday morning you talk about arrogance we tried to stop them and what they do to one of our people they gave him the finger. We have a picture of it. And you want to talk about arrogance and about people desecrating your property and my property. This is what it's all about. And hope every one of you sign that petition. And hope every one of you get behind Civil War Preservation Trust, save Historic Antietam Foundation, any other group that you know of who are trying to save our sacred ground, to respect our sacred ground. So this is ground is there for my children and my grandchildren and the same for you. I want Antietam to stay like this. I don't want a McDonald's around it or Burger King's or anything like that. I want this to be a sanctuary where I can go and see it. So please, please do your preservation work. And that's how I'll get off my soapbox. We were able to go into a partnership with the National Park Service for the Pry House and the Pry Barn a year and a half ago. Through the good work of our Executive Director George Wunderlich and uh, Superintendent John Howard, it was the first time that a private entity such as our museum went into a park partnership with the Park Service. And now we can uh, exhibit on the first floor of the Pry House, we have exhibits about the family of the Pry how the war affected the people in and around the Letterman plan. And we also do exhibits in the barn. The barn is now being restored. Uh, last May, we had a, a living history in the barn for a whole weekend. We have a, a children's uh, Civil War camp that we work in and out of that. And we also can bring 120 students at a time into this barn and explain Civil War medicine to them. So this is a great boon for both the National Museum of Civil War Medicine and the National Park Service at Antietam and shows it can be done. And good thing, what goes around comes around. It was an answer to my dream that this was going to be done. Jonathan Letterman. Who was Jonathan Letterman? The father of battlefield medicine in our country. Started an ambulance system that's still effective today and still called the Letterman Plan. Started a system of hospital supply started a system of triage, started a system of surgical care for the soldiers using a, hot, uh, ampu uh, a surgical team of three surgeons. He was born December the 11th, 1824 in Cannonsburg, Pennsylvania, outside of 
uh, Pittsburgh. His father was a doctor and his mother was, came from a very prominent family in and around Cannonsburg. He went to college at Jefferson College, which was in Cannonsburg at that time, graduated in 1848. It's now Washington Jefferson College in Washington, Pennsylvania. He decided to go to medical school and follow in his father's footsteps. He graduated from Jefferson Medical College in 1849. Everybody thought that he would come back to Cannonsburg and take over his uh, father's practice. His father had now uh, died. He decided to do something else. He decided to take an exam to become an army doctor in 1849. He went to New York along with 52 other candidates. It was a three-day grilling exam. They asked him about anatomy. They asked him about physiology and all the, all the uh, requisites of medical education. Nine passed. Letterman was one of them. And another gentleman was in this passing class by the name of William A. Hammond. Letterman's first duty station was Camp Meade outside of Tampa, Florida. He was stationed there with a young lieutenant, Thomas Jackson. Thomas Jackson and Letterman being quite good friends at Camp Meade. In fact, they almost got court-martialed together because they had a thing with a Captain French. In fact, in 1853, they all went their separate ways. Jackson went to VMI. Letterman went to the northern parts of Fort Ripley in Minnesota, and French went down into other parts of Florida. It's ironic, in 1862, in September, they all met together. Thomas Jackson was Corps Commander at Antietam, Letterman was Medical Director, and French was a Division Commander at Antietam. In 1862, Letterman was appointed by Hammond as medical director of the Army of the Potomac and told to come to this place, the James River, the Harrison Landing Plantation. There were 20,000 six Union soldiers, the results of the Peninsula Campaign, dying of malarial fever, scurvy, typhoid, dysentery, any kind of a disease you know. Hammond said, get them out of there. I don't care how you do it, how much it costs but move those soldiers. Within two weeks, Letterman had that camp out of there and had the wounded soldiers and the sick soldiers out to Fortress Monroe and up to Alexandria and up into Washington City. Letterman was a doer. He didn't take no for an answer. In September of 1862, we all know we've been here before, the bloodiest day in American history. Letterman had now set up a plan for evacuation of wounded soldiers. His hospital evacuation, his ambulance plan. Where each division, brigade, corps, all had their ambulance system in working order and under the direct command of the commanding officer, the medical director. A wounded man now was not going to languish on the battlefield for two or three weeks before somebody came to get him out. He knew help was on the way with the Letterman Plan. This was carried over, and we call it the Letterman Plan evacuation in the Army today. We used it in Vietnam. We use it in Iraq. In Vietnam, we use these dust-off helicopters to clear an area, bring out the wounded soldiers. Every man who flew these should have the Silver Star at least, or the Medical, Medical Medal of Honor. 
peril every time they dropped in to get these wounded soldiers. This is the patch they wore, medevac, so that others may live. This was started by Jonathan Letterman in 1862. He also used hospital ships and hospital railroad cars to move wounded soldiers. The ships traveled the rivers, the Mississippi, the Cumberland, Tennessee, Ohio rivers to move wounded soldiers back out of the uh, war area, back in the field hospitals of the north. The field dressing station he established where the wounded soldier within 60 yards could get basic first aid from a couple of assistant surgeons and a corpsman aid man who would carry basic material out to the battlefield to give him first aid. This shows that one of the field hospitals in Antietam, this is Anson Hurd of the 14th in Indiana. He set up a very temporary hospital because after Antietam, tentage was hard to get. It took almost a week or two for Letterman to get the tents there. You can use, see they're using blankets, they're using stretchers, anything to put over the man where they could get him out of the sun and the elements. They also use evacuation hospitals. This is the Hoffman Farm at Antietam. The battlefield's about a mile and a half here, so they evacuate by ambulance to the Hoffman barn. Here basic first aid was given again. This is the interior of a barn during the Civil War. Sorry, an operating table, a plank over some barrels to get the man up and, and they bring the soldiers in. This last May we had the United States Army bring one of their field, uh, mobile field hospitals in. They either bring them in by helicopters or truck and they plant these down on the battlefield or near the battlefield and they do basic surgery right there on the battlefield and save the men. In Iraq, we were moving men off the battlefield by either uh, uh, wagon, I'm not wagons, by truck or ambulance, helicopter ambulances. And we are having them now back in the United States within three days from the battlefield of Iraq. We evacuate them out from Iraq to Germany, and from Germany, we get them back to Walter Reed, or we get them back to Bamsey down at uh, Brook Army Medical Center within three days. During Vietnam, it took 14. All we're doing now on the battlefield is holding surgery. Stabilize the man, get him out of there as fast as we can, get him back to the major hospitals where the great care can be given to him. The Letterman plan is working. This is what happens at Gettysburg, I mean at Antietam. This is a soldier of the 6th Wisconsin. His name is Darling. Company E6, he was wounded in the foot. Amputation at the, uh, well, he, had, he was wounded in the ankle at the Miller Farm. This is the Miller Farm, the Northwoods, the Poffenberger. This is how he was evacuated out of the battlefield. This is the cornfield where he was wounded. I got this picture, and I, was, I showed this to Denny Fry. Denny Fry, you know, Denny Fry is the great Antietam expert, Harper's Ferry. He said, Doc, how'd you get that picture? Because that shows how the corn was during the Civil War. You know how corn grows today, man, you can actually see through it. But they did a movie or some kind of a movie out there, so they cut the corn back and what it looked like during the Civil War. It wasn't intense as we have it today. So Denny always liked this slide, but this is where uh, uh, Private Darling was wounded. He was evacuated past the Miller house. There was probably an assistant surgeon had his field dressing station in and around the grounds of the Miller house. Evacuated down the, uh, the uh, Hagerstown Pike to the Joseph Poffenberger barn. Here he was given stimulants, his wound was uh, evaluated. Interior of the barn showing an amputating table, the ambulance is coming in, the wounded soldiers. And from there he was evacuated out to Smoketown Road, which is still there. We've taken buses out there many times, even in the mud, but you can still take the Smoketown Road. And it comes to the confluence of the Keatesville and the Smoketown Road 
and this is where Smoketown Hospital was located. And again, there's Surgeon Anson Hurd, who was in charge of the Smoketown Hospital. Here, a private darling sat for three weeks. He had an amputation by Surgeon Vanderclief. He survived the amputation. He was evacuated to Mary and I's most favorite town, Keatesville, Maryland, which is two miles away from Smoketown. Here he was given rest and some dressing of his wounds, and he was taken over the South Mountain to Turner's Gap to Middletown, and he stopped at this church in Middletown, taken out of the ambulances, wounds were dressed, uh, given fresh food and water, and given about a 12-hour rest before they made the last 10, 10 miles from Middleburg into Frederick at the Hessian Barracks Hospital, Hospital Number One. So this was the evacuation of a Civil War soldier from the battlefield of Antietam all the way back to Frederick, Maryland. And Private Darling survived his amputation. And in 18, uh, I'm trying to look, 1881, he was, given, he was given full pension and he lived until the year 1900. Letterman also set up a system of medical supply. He had these boxes obtained from different medical dealers, pharmaceuticals. This was dealt by Edward R. Squibb. There were 33 different medicines in this box, all numbered by the label. So if a surgeon ran out of one particular item, he could go to medical supply and plug that in. Say he ran out of chloroform, which would be in here, he could get another bottle of chloroform and resupply himself. They just didn't throw the whole box away, which they did before the Letterman plan. October of 63. Lincoln came out and wanted to know what McClellan was doing with his army. You know, McClellan had a lot of excuses. So here's Mac, here's Lincoln. So Mac says, well, let's call together my staff at the Grove Farm and we'll have our picture taken. So Letterman was on his staff, so Letterman had to be in the picture. Who's Letterman? Da-da-da-da. Everybody else, you know, commanding officer calls a meeting and you got the commander in chief coming, they're all gonna polish their boots and button their coats. Not Jonathan Letterman. He's standing two, away, two feet away from the president. He's got his hands on his belt. So I don't wanna be here. I got work to do. Get this over with and let's go. But that's Jonathan Letterman. Lincoln came to Letterman. <coughs> He said, will you give me a tour through the hospital at the Grove Farm? He said, I would like to talk to the soldiers, especially any Confederate wounded you have. Letterman, yes, sir. Took him to the hospital. There was a young, the story goes, there was a young Confederate soldier laying on a mat about 17 years old. Letterman knew from his surgeon that he wasn't going to live probably another day. Lincoln took off his hat, knelt down next to the soldier, and they had a conversation. Nobody knew what he said or what they said. Letterman couldn't make it out. But all he knew when Lincoln stood back up, tears were coming down the president's eyes, cheeks, and he said, when will this war ever be over? When will it be over? And this is 62. And it wasn't over in 63. It wasn't over in 64. And it finally ended in 65. R&R &R in October, Letterman went to this place called the Old Needwood. One of his brother medical officers was raised at this farm outside of Burkittsville. There was a young lady there, Mary Lee. There was her mother, and we think that this is Mrs. McClellan who came out and was staying in the house 
uh, while her husband was in and around the area. Letterman met Mary. They had a courtship, and a year later, in October of 1862, the two of them were married inside the house at Old Needwood. This house still stands, and we were able to get close to it. 1863, after the Battle of Gettysburg, in the fall of 1863, Letterman, for some odd reason, got disenchanted with the Army. He had a falling out with General Meade after the Battle of Gettysburg, and the 4th of January, 1864, Letterman left the Army. He resigned his commission. He became a hospital inspector in Philadelphia for a while, and in 1865, he and his wife and his newly born daughter, Cassie, moved to California. They were part of an oil drilling uh, corporation formed by oil uh, drillers from the state of Pennsylvania in and around Santa Barbara. Didn't find much oil. In fact, they found nothing but dust. They lost about $90,000 in the deal. But what happened to Letterman after that? He became medical examiner for the city of San Francisco. In 1867, a great calamity happened to Letterman when his beloved wife died. After the effects of childbirth, her second daughter, Madeline, was born, and she died of a uterine hemorrhage. She was buried in outside of San Francisco. Letterman was in ill health at this time, and he sent the two daughters back to Maryland to live with their in-laws as he continued struggling away in, in San Francisco. 1872, the disease got the better of him. He called for one of his friends to come back out and see him, William A. Hammond. But he passed away on March the 15th, 1872, and was buried in Cavalry Cemetery in San Francisco. His one daughter, Cassie, became private secretary to President Taft, and it was through his offices that the bodies of her mother and father were brought back and buried in Arlington Cemetery amongst the soldiers that he had helped during the war. It says on his tomb, who brought order and efficiency into the medical service and was the originator of modern methods of medical organization in the Army. It also says, quotes, Ecclesiastics 39.13, the memory of him shall not depart away, and his name shall be in request from generation to generation. That's my job, and has been my job for the last 10 years, telling the true story of Civil War medicine and the story of Jonathan Letterman. Remember these pictures? This is Chattanooga. What year? Here's your badge, 1983. Anybody you know back there? I don't know anyone. Who's this guy, young guy? I don't know who that younger guy is. Mrs. McDowell, Mary McDowell, Mary. Leslie. Leslie, excuse me. Yeah, she's passed away now. And Vlasny? Jim Vlasny. This is at Chickamauga. We went out there again on the Sunday morning. We rented a car and went out there and redid the battlefield. I dug through the archives and look at this guy. He's smiling.
He had a beard. He'll get another beard. <clears throat> but these people, remember this? The cows are attacking us at Gettysburg. <laughs> They're looking at them, and these guys are looking at their maps. This guy's going to get it right in his you-know-where if he doesn't move very quickly. <laughs> They're all looking, they're stepping like this as they're going. <laughs> See, I know all about that living in Lena. We got a lot of cow shit out there. <laughs> How about this one? Ed Bars. Good old Ed on top of a little round top. Good thing nobody punched the button and had the you know the the audio things going on up there. Charlie and John sitting on a cannon. And Mac. Mary. This, my friends, I reminisces of the Chicago Roundtable and the many trips I've taken with them. And again, if it wasn't for you, the Chicago Roundtable, for what you did to get me started, because I was a neophyte in 1975 when I joined you. They said, who's this clown from Glean, Illinois? But they took me under your wing and you taught me a lot of things. And you were the one that gave me the inspiration to carry on with, with the museum. And I thank you and the National Museum of Civil War Medicine thank you. And I thank you for this award because it goes to me, but it also goes to my family and it goes to the National Museum of Civil War Medicine. Thank you very much. Sure. Uh, as long as it's not for Marshall. <laughs> I, I hope we'll get lights here. Lights, camera. Yeah. Well, while we're waiting for the lights to be found, thank you so much, Gordy, for all that you've done. It was just a wonderful presentation. And personally, my first talk with the um, uh, Civil War Roundtable of Chicago was one of yours. Really? Mm-hmm. You came back. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and I even remember parts of it. Oh, gee. <laughs> and especially the name. It was in defense of Civil War surgeons. It was outstanding. Ooh. And at that time, I think it was the late 80s, you and your son were still out in Gettysburg and finding artifacts on, on the uh, battlefield. Don't say that because we'll get in trouble with the government. <laughs> we kind of paraded around outside the battlefields, but yeah. Well, I enjoyed it, and I enjoyed tonight very, very much. And would you take five questions? Sure, five question. questions? Sure. Are there any, is there yes, any questions? Post-operative mortality, the question is probably... Most of them died of subsequent infection after the operation. And uh, say the amputation, say we're doing amputation, as you get closer to the trunk of the body, meaning the midline, your chances of survival went down. The operator at your wrist, you probably had 14% uh, uh, you were gonna die. If you get closer to the arm, it gets up to 80%. Same thing with the hip joint. So the closer you get, but most of the problem, uh, they knew how to do surgery, but they, they couldn't combat the infection because nothing was sterile at that period of time. So most of them died of septicemia, uh, strep, staph, anything that we can call it today, which we don't know now. They didn't know then. Yes, Armin. He asked what killed 
What killed Stonewall? Pneumonia. Pneumonia. That's the theory today that we heard last time too. I mean, I just heard a talk on that in June at the uh, Civil War Institute. And the thing was, was uh, he came through the operation very well and they took him to Guinea Station. And one of the theories this one man had who gave the presentation said he was taken to the plantation house, the big house, and there was sickness in this house before, maybe a strep or some kind of a staff, and he contacted it there, but they moved him out to the other house where he actually died. It's too bad they put him in the, didn't put him in the out area where he probably wouldn't have uh, garnered the infection that killed him, but it, it was pneumonia, we think. I'm sorry, I missed your question, but my hearing is beep. Yeah, yeah, on the, on the eastern floor. And there was a uh, Dr. Stout who was on the uh, Western Theater with the Confederate Army that moved with the Confederate Army as Sherman was moving south to Atlanta. And he had mobile hospitals as he kept having to move his hospital south as Sherman was advancing against him. So south, uh, Surgeon Stout Confederate Army uh, was a counterpart of Letterman also. Any others? Way in the back. You're going to have to interpret. The question was that doctors who weren't qualified. As I said, there were medical schools and they were given tests and they came out with medical degrees. Uh, some of them simply did a preceptorship, meaning they just worked with an older doctor for maybe a year, year and a half, and they came out and became uh, put out their shingle and MDs. They were boards, each state, and there was a medical board. Uh, for the federal government that gave, like I said, this three-day test that Letterman had to pass. So there was ways of weeding these out, but there were a lot of incompetence. Uh, but most of the time, by the end of the war, these incompetence, incompetence surgeons were weeded out of the Army, both North and South. Law Homestead. Not that I know of that he ever worked with Letterman. Letterman uh, Olmsted again was another pioneer physician, a uh, man ahead of his time. Uh, I can't give you a lot of information because I really didn't. I haven't studied his theories or what he did. But I can tell you, I don't think he ever and Letterman ever got together and compared uh, notes and things like that. But I know that Olmsted was a man, and after the war, his theories became almost like gospel and carried medicine into the modern centuries. Last question. There's one last question. Yes. Did Abraham Lincoln forbid the movement of medicines and things that south of the Mason Dixon line? I don't know. I know the Confederate the Confederate Army when they raided our hospital trains, I mean our um, supply trains, the first thing they went after after ammunition was medical supplies. 
Uh, they wanted the color form and ether because they didn't have the ways of manufacturing the drugs uh, that the Union Army did, which was probably better for the Confederate Army because half the drugs, as one man said, should have been thrown into the sea. It would have been better for mankind, but it would have been bad for the fish. <laughs> because the drugs they used were deadly poisons. Mercury and the heavy leads and things like that as purgatives. And the Confederates are actually using some of the, uh, uh, trying to think of the word, you know, mosses from trees and things like that to concoct some of the, dr some of the drugs that they were using and were probably a lot, a lot kinder to mankind than some of the things that the Union were using. Well, Gordy, we thank you so very much. And we have things for you. Oh, oh I also, other. Are there any teachers here? A few. I've got some things from our museum, uh, some educational things that you might want to use in your schools or give them to somebody you might know, so I'm just going to put them out here. But then you, if you want to contact our museum, because we have a great educational part, and I'll put these out. Okay. The first thing is Ooh. this <laughs> dynamite bag from the Chicago Civil War Roundtable. And we won't see it in your museum. We'll see it in your home or elsewhere. You'll see it on the tour. <laughs> yeah, I hope so. The second thing we have for you is a sterling medallion. Just open it here. It opened at home. All right. Wait a minute. I don't know. Here, you want me to try? Yeah. Yeah. Would you? Thank you. <laughs> Hands of a dentist can do anything. <laughs> It's a little stand here, and it says, oh, cool. yeah, presented to Dr. Gordon Dahman on October 13, 2006, the Chicago Civil War Roundtable. I'll okay. cherish it forever. Well, thank, thank you. you. Thank you. And in honor of the historians that the Nevins Freeman Award is so named, obviously, we have a rebound copy of the original books by Douglas Southall Freeman and Alan Nevins. So... Congratulations to you, and you, you richly deserve this award. Thank you very much. Thank you Thank for coming. You Thank you. Oh, you have a whole bag to take it all in now. Very good. The book's in the bag. It works. The book's in the bag. <laughs> now you can adjourn to the bar. <laughs> and hope to see all of you back next in November. I think it's the 8th for uh, a talk by Robert O'Neill on... Um, Lessons in Leadership, John Buford, Wesley Merritt, uh, Philip St. George Cook, and Custer. Thank you. Have a nice weekend.